All right. Well, good e- evening, Coastline family. Good evening, people that are watching at home. I know on Thursday nights we have a, a crowd that watches at home. Just a reminder that it is gloriously sunny at this time of the year till even late after we get done with service. So if you don't like to drive out at night, you can still get out here and go home and be home in time. I promise, even tonight where I'm going to go long, um, it will not be too long where you can't get home in the daylight. So it's always better to come in person. We have a barbecue from 5.30 to 6.30 um, by yours truly. I cooked the burgers tonight. Were they good, guys? Yeah. Yes. All right. So I fed people physically, and now we're going to feed you spiritually. So it was it's glorious just hanging out with your church body during these summer months. And so we'll keep doing that next month, and we'll see how the winter goes. But all that to say is we welcome you here tonight for our Signs of the Times prophecy, Bible study. We're going to be going through Daniel 9, hopefully the whole entire thing. Such a great chapter for a lot of reasons, not just because of Bible prophecy, but also because it's one of the greatest examples we have in scripture, greatest models of prayer. So we will be going through that. Um, People are working their way in here, but we're going to start out with uh, uh, worship because that's the, the best way to come into the presence of the Lord. So let me pray and then Justin will lead us in a couple songs. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much for giving us this beautifully glorious evening, Lord, and just this time together to break bread and talk about things in our lives for us to edify and glorify each other um, or edify and, and build each other up, Lord, for you to do that through us. And Lord, we're so thankful we can come tonight and sit under the teaching of your word. We know that your word has power. It has everything we need to Learn how to do every good work that you have for us in our lives. And we want to do those good things. So um, we want to pay attention to it. And we want to allow you to change us for the better with the things you tell us in it. So Lord, as we come into your presence, I pray that this would be an opportunity just to set aside the busyness of the day. um, Maybe even some of the things we came in here worrying about. That we'd be able to give those to you. And we'd be able to sing these truths that we know from your word and we've experienced in our lives and praise you for him, Lord. And even if we didn't come in here with thankful hearts, maybe this is an opportunity for us to remind ourselves why we have every reason to be thankful in our lives because of you, Lord. So may this bless you and may you bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the lights come back on, somebody will go grab those. And uh, if you need a Bible, you can also just Raise your hand and we'll get you that. <clears throat> and once you have it, you can turn to Daniel 9 while that's happening. Fun fact, Justin and me share a similar desire in that we both wanted to be part of the food ministry here at Coastline. <laughs> and he ended up a worship leader and I ended up as a pastor, so go figure. But that's what we l- would have wanted to chose or choose and so whenever we get the chance to do it, because Justin cook a mean barbecue too, we're all the more than happy to jump back there and help out because I love cooking because I love eating. So, <laughs> Anyways, I love eating the word of God too. So um, both are kind of fitting. So we're going to be in Daniel 9. And uh, again, if you need a Bible, just raise your hands. We'll, we'll get one to you. And if you don't have one or own one, keep that. And it's kind of towards the midpoint of your Bible. Um, just a reminder, we're, we're, what we're doing is we're, um, these last Thursdays of the month are reserved for uh, a focus on Bible prophecy. Um, and currently what we're doing is we're 
going through the book of Daniel, uh, verse by verse, line by line, looking at, which is a highly uh, prophecy-filled book. So that's why we're going through it. And then we're also kind of taking breaks every other month. This 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 is kind of weird this month because um, we taught Daniel 8 last month, so we're teaching Daniel 9 this month. And the next month, the intent is to kind of do kind of like a Q&A or like a, a panel discussion where we're kind of looking at some of the things happening in the world and how they relate to the prophecies that are given in this chapter. So we're in Daniel 9. And uh, again, uh, our, our heart is to want to look at what... The word of God says first, all right, and then kind of examine the things happening around us and see how those things relate to the word of God. Some people make the mistake of doing that backwards and they get, you know, kind of caught up in in the um, sensationalism of the stuff going on in the world, which really has nothing to do with Bible prophecy because they don't have a solid foundation of understanding what the word says. And so we want the solid understanding for our people of what the word says first. And then we'll know how to interpret the things going on around us. And this chapter is really great because what we're going to see is Daniel do that himself it, 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 for a prophecy that was fulfilled in his time. So he gives us an example of that. And that is, by the way, how Jesus told us to approach Bible prophecy in Matthew 24, 32 through 33. He uses this example of a fig tree and its branches budding when it's in season And so he says in the same way when you see all these things referring to the things that he said would happen as we got nearer to his return, um, you can know this return or you can know his return is very near right at the door. Like basically when you see these things happening in the world, you know that my return is very near. And as, as we see these things that the Bible talks about that would happen or the preparations for those things happening, we see that we're getting really near to the return of the Lord. And as a way of reminder, a good outline for the book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6 historically describe the the life of Daniel as he was in exile. He was one of the Israelites that was taken um, because of their unrepentant sin. God allowed them to be taken from their home in Israel by Babylon to go live in Babylon as exiles. And he was one of those. Um, So this stuff, is these visions he's having are happening from Babylon as he's in exile. And then chapters 7 through 12, the second half of this book, describe visions that Daniel was basically given by God during that time as an exile. So 1 through 6 is kind of an historical account of his life there. And chapters 7 through 12 describe these visions that God gives him. And the vision we looked at in chapter 8 gave Daniel greater detail of specific things that would happen within the framework of the first vision he was given in chapter 7 that was of... Four beasts that represented four world kingdoms, three of which have already come. One, the last one that has come but never really went away and is going to resurrect. And that's the the last world empire that will be led by the Antichrist. And then this vision in chapter 8, or the vision in chapter 8, mainly focuses on two animals. One being a ram that represented the Medo-Persian Empire, which was the second world empire that conquered the Babylonians. Um, that we saw in chapter 7. And then it focused on a goat with horns that represented the Greek Empire, which was the third world empire that conquered the Medo-Persians, the third world empire that was also talked about in chapter 7. And this next vision we see Daniel have here in chapter 9, again, is giving us greater detail about these four kingdoms. Specifically, what it's going to focus on is something that's going to happen in the fourth kingdom, the resurrected uh, Roman Empire kingdom, 
that has yet to come, that's going to come in the future led by the Antichrist, all right? So that's where we're going to pick it up tonight. Let me pray one more time, and then we are going to try to go through this whole chapter, even though it's a long one, because it is so good. Okay, even the, the prophecy part's good, but the, the prayer model is like, I'm telling you guys, there's so much nuggets of rich truth in here on prayer. So, dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much uh, for your word, and, and thank you that it's there for us to learn from. I just found myself... Um, being uh, convicted and challenged in my prayer life, even as I read through this chapter and seeing Daniel's example and, and knowing and being just reminded of the importance of prayer and how it is the first and foremost response we should have to um, anything in our lives. And, and how that, I love how he says like that he's not approaching you based off his righteousness, but because of your mercy. Lord, we, we don't come to you uh, to try in prayer to try to somehow earn your favor. We come to you because we have your favor already. And we know that you love us and you want to answer our prayers for our betterment. So we'd be foolish not to come. So Lord, as we look at these truths in your word, this example Daniel gives us, and as we look at these prophecies that are still to come, Lord, I, I pray that you would really teach us these things in such a way that they leave us changed when we leave from here, Lord, for the better, our Father. Have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting in verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, it's a hard name, but Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, um, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books... The number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So just as a way of reminder, the timeline for the events in this chapter are after Darius the Mede uh, took power when he he was uh, one of the kings of Persia. He took power when... King Belshazzar was killed. Basically, Babylon had been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, and he took power, which we saw happen uh, around Daniel 5, at the end of Daniel 5-ish, kind of timeline-wise, which historically happened in 539 B.C. So that's when this vision is being given. And even though Daniel was a prophet for God, that that, that God actually spoke directly through, and somebody that God gave direct visions in Revelations 2, here's something that I think is important to note. He's also somebody, despite those things, that was somebody that studied and relied on God's word, as we see here in verse 2. It wasn't just God speaking directly to him that he relied on. He relied on God's word, too. In fact, we left off with Daniel being greatly troubled at the vision that was given to him in Daniel 8. And what do we see him do in response here? He goes to the word of God in his trouble or his his anxiety at that vision that god showed him which is a great example for us to follow as well because when we're troubled by things in our own lives i'm telling you god's word is what gives you every reason to have hope no matter how hard that situation is because it's filled with all the reasons and all the promises that god has that he is going to turn everything for your good in life all right not that everything will be good but he will work it for your good. And so that's why when we're troubled, when we have anxiousness, when we have worry, we go to God's word, just like Daniel did, all right? And he finds hope in this 
in this passage, in this section he's reading, um, in, in, it gives us a great example of how to read, interpret, or he gives us a great example of how to read and interpret or understand Bible prophecy because what it tells us here is that he is studying what we know is the book of Jeremiah, okay? It would have been on a scroll for him, but he had Jeremiah's prophecy or the word of God that God gave him, and he must have come to Jeremiah 25, 11 through 13, or Jeremiah 29, 10, which spoke of the fact, remember God gave him this prophecy to give to the nation of Israel that they were going to be exiled for 70 years, all right, because of their unrepentant sin, they were going to be taken from Babylon, from their home, and to Babylon, and at the end of that 70 years, God would restore them. He'd come and deliver them and ultimately bring them back home. And Daniel sees this prophecy. He recognizes the times they're living in. He understands that, man, this applies to us in the times we live in right now. And he understands that, man, this is 70 years and we're almost at the end of that, okay? And it's important to understand that he took those 70 years is literal, Okay, because he gets what we see is he gets excited about it and it causes him to, in a sense, seek the Lord in prayer. And I think that's a good example for us in how we're to interpret Bible prophecy in that when you see these years and you see these numbers, there's no reason to take them as being symbolic unless for some reason it tells you it's being symbolic. Daniel didn't do that. He saw it 70 years and he assumed it meant 70 years. And that's a good example for us in the way that we approach these things when we read them, okay? And Daniel understanding that the Lord was coming to deliver them soon and take them home, it got him excited and motivated him to take action, to do something about it, which he chose to do in the form of prayer. Daniel believing that 70 years would have to pass, or he understood what God's word said, understood there was still some time to wait before God would deliver him. But he also recognizes that God's promises to you invite your prayer and participation in those promises, okay? Just because God says he's going to do something in your life does not mean you shouldn't be involved in pray and seek the Lord on those things that he says he'll do. In fact, God's word is what the main focus of your prayer life should be. You want to know why? Because if you pray God's word, you can be absolutely sure that he is going to answer those prayers, okay? 1 John 5, 14 through 15 tells us, if we are, and we are confident that he who hears us, whenever we ask for anything that pleases him, obviously anything that pleases him is going to be what his word says is good, right? And if you're praying in line with his word, it pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for, all right? So praying the truth of God's word will give us a confident faith in what we're asking for because God most certainly will do what he says he's going to do. He's always proven that to be true in our lives, amen? So that's the best way you can pray, praying according to God's word, all right? And that's what Daniel here does too. And this response by Daniel is exactly the type of response that reading God's word and understanding Bible prophecy and understanding the times we live in, knowing that our time is almost up, should produce in us because we have a part to play in God's preordained plan. 
And it's not for you to sit back with Cheetos or Doritos and do nothing. Okay? God ordained the 70 years of captivity, but Jeremiah had a prophecy to give about it. Daniel had a prayer to make for deliverance from it that God would hear and answer. And Cyrus, who wasn't even a believer, a Gentile king, had a proclamation to eventually make about it to let the Jews go home. So God was sovereign in making sure this plan unfolded, but many different people had roles to to play in seeing that plan play out just as every single one of us have in God's plan. Amen? So when people say like, yeah, these people that are focused on Bible prophecy, they just sit back and they want to do nothing. If that's what you're doing, that is not what it's supposed to produce in you. It's supposed to produce action and excitement at seeing that everything God said is going to happen, is going to happen, and that you better get to work because the time is short. Amen? And that's what you see Daniel do. And it says in verse 3, it says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, um, and please uh, for mercy with fasting and sackcloth in ashes. So I want you to note that after Daniel is prompted to pray, we then see him prep himself to pray by turning his face to the Lord, as it says there in verse 3. Or the idea is that he determined himself to pray. And he did this by wearing sackcloth and fasting. Basically, sackcloth, if you don't know what that is, it was like a garment made out of like um, something with rough hair, usually camel. And they would, they would turn it inside out so that basically everywhere you walked, it would itch. And the idea was it would constantly remind you that I need to be seeking God. I need to be praying because you're uncomfortable, all right? And it wasn't like just to like be miserable, but there was a purpose behind it to keep yourself prayerful. Remember why you're wearing it, if you will. And then biblical fasting, typically consisting of a person going without food or water, that goal, the goal of that was to deny your flesh, um, not to, again, earn favor with God, but rather to get rid of distractions. Maybe you guys have noticed this. I started intermittent fasting again this week. Um, and it, it, when I do that, I notice that my focus is greater. Like my head just seems clear, more clear-minded. And so even when we do our week of prayer and fasting, you would think that having like no food for a week makes you less focused, but it seems to make me more focused. And so they would do this with that intent of being focused and limiting distractions in their life so they could focus on praying to God. And this is a good example for us as well to note, as I am sure that we can all say that every single one of us every day of our lives are prompted to pray, but are we making the preparations to pray like Daniel to ensure that we are actually doing it? Because as you probably figured out already in life, prayer never happens by itself unless you are determined to do it. And then once you do it, maybe you found that there's so many distractions usually around you that can distract your mind from what you're trying to accomplish and trying to pray to God so that your prayer time is not very effective. So if we aren't intentional about carving out time, it won't happen. And if we don't remove those potential distractions, we won't have very fruitful prayer lives. And this is one of the reasons that as a church, we set aside times to pray on Wednesday mornings and uh, the first Thursday of the month, which we're doing next Thursday, to kind of give us those corporate times of intentionality to come together and pray. And we should all have those in our lives too. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. Amen? And so he does this. He 
He doesn't only, he's not, when he's prompted to pray, he preps himself so that he makes sure that prayer happens. And now as we see Daniel pray, we're given a great biblical model on how to pray. With the first principle I want you to note being, we need to remember who we're talking to. Starting in verse 4, Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, or basically you keep your word and your promises. And it goes on, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Basically, for those that love you, you always show your love to them. And for those that keep their your commandments or they listen and obey, you're going to answer their prayers. You're going to bless them. Blessing comes with obedience. He's reminding himself of these truths that he had come to know about God. Mind you, not for God's benefit, because God doesn't have an inferiority complex. He doesn't need you to build him up. He knows who he is. But for our benefit, because it's so easy to forget or lose sight of just how great our God is, at the fact that he loves us, at the fact that he's always going to keep his promises to us when we're distracted by that thing in our life that seems so insurmountable. Amen? And so it is good when we come to God to remind ourselves of who he is. Because when we're going through those hard things, we need to be reminded, number one, of how great our God is, So, like Daniel did. So we're confident that no matter how tough it might seem or how hard that thing might be seem that you're going through, we know that God is way bigger. He can handle it. We need to be reminded that he's always going to be faithful to keep his, promise to his promises to us in his word, all right? Because his promises to us are always for our good or they're with our good in mind. Might not be what we'd like to see happen, but God knows better than us. And so that gives us absolute confidence in any given situation. Again, no matter how bad it might seem, that inevitably it's going to turn for our good because God is in control of it. We also need to remind himself of, remind ourselves of his constant love for us. Because here's the thing, if you love somebody, do you ever intentionally do bad things to that person? No, you want the best for him, right? And so where we mess up on that sometimes, God is perfect, he doesn't mess up on that. So if we remember he loves us, we know that he's most certainly going to answer his good promises to us, all right? And it also helps us understand that he's not begrudgingly sitting up there just, I can't believe Chris is bringing this thing to me again. Or I can't believe he's not dealing with this thing on his own. No. Just like your kids, when they come to you and they ask you to fix a problem in their life, that's what we want. That's what we're here for as parents. We love it when they do that. And the same with God, because of our love for them. So it's important to remind ourselves of that. And it's also important to remind ourselves that obedience to God's word will lead to blessing or obedience to his commandments is as he reminds himself, because it's good for us to check ourselves. Is there sin in my life? Did I do something against what God says? Because maybe I'm self-inflicting whatever consequences I'm facing. And we want to be quick to repent of that if we do have sin in our lives. So these are important things to remind ourselves, just like Daniel reminded himself. And that idea of repentance leads to the second principle of prayer that we see here in this example by Daniel. And that is repentance, okay? The first was know who you're talking to. Second is repentance. He goes on in verse 5. I'm going to read a long section here. He says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments 
in rules, or basically, to sum that up, we're not obeying what you told us to do, okay? Verse 6, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of land. Or basically, we haven't listened to the people that you sent to us to speak on your behalf, Lord. We're guilty of that. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Or basically, he's acknowledging these consequences that we're all facing, they're self-inflicted. We've brought these things upon ourselves. He's not blaming God. Verse 8 says, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice in the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against them. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, or maybe, you know, just somewhere back there, that God was very specific when he gave him the law, saying that if you don't follow these commandments, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be famines. There's going to be pestilence. There's going to be the sword, you know, against you. This is what's going to happen if you disobey me. And so what... Um, what Daniel's acknowledging here is like, this is why we're facing what we're facing. The, basically, the consequences you warned us of, we didn't listen, and now we're facing those very things. What you said would happen actually happened. And he says in verse 12, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities or sin and gaining insight by your truth. Or Basically, what he's acknowledging is even though all this has happened, all these self-inflicted consequences, we still have not repented of our sin. We still have not gone back to your word or truth to see what we should do. We're, we're, we're ignoring you, basically. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. Or basically, God, you have not made a single mistake. You are right in everything that is happening and you're justified in your actions. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned, we have done Wickedly. So, a couple things I want you to note in that big section. Number one, Daniel identifies himself as guilty with the rest of Israel by using the terms we and us over and over again. Now, why is that significant? Well, if you know your Bible, you would know that Daniel is one of the few men in the Old Testament where there is no mention of any sin in his life. Okay? Doesn't mean he's sinless. Because Romans 3.10 tells us that no one is righteous, not even one, okay? But what it does tell us is that he probably lived a pretty righteous life, about as righteous as you could get for a follower 
of God, all right? Yet he still identifies himself as a sinner. And best we can tell, he wasn't with the rest of the Jews who had kind of completely turned their back on God, let the temple be desecrated. What we see in his life is that he was mourning for his brothers and sisters, that he had compassion on them, that it it hurt him to see them turn away from God and not be willing to turn back. And, And so instead of finding fault in his brothers and sisters or casting stones at them for their sin, thinking he was better than them in some way, I would argue because he was a man that had such a solid understanding of his God, he understood how wretched he was in comparison to God. And and even though he wasn't as visibly bad as maybe some of his brothers and sisters, he knew, I'm not perfect either, and it's only by God's mercy and grace that I'm loved and that he's forgiven me. So it helped him view his brothers and sisters in the right way, basically as desperate sinners in need of a savior just like he was, and that proper understanding gave Daniel compassion for them. And it made me think, same with us, right? We want to understand that we want to see each other through the way God sees us. And I've said this before, basically before Jesus comes into your life, every single one of us is as wretched as we could ever be. With Jesus as your savior, every single one of us is perfect as we could ever be in God's eyes. Even though we're all works in progress, and that looks different But that doesn't really matter because God sees us the same. And that's the way we're to look at each other, right? And here's what Paul tells us. In 1 Corinthians 12, he tells us that just as the human body is made up of many different parts, but but every single part of us has a significant function, the church is all part of one body with Christ as the head, with each of us being a part of that body, but having different roles in every single one of them being significant. And just... If a part of my body gets hurt and feels pain, all right, and that affects, like let's say I stub my toe, the rest of my body feels that pain, right? It's not just my toe that feels that pain. So too with the church, when one of our brothers and sisters is hurting, the rest of us should be feeling that pain as well, all right? Let me give you an example. I'm really sensitive, my toes, my fingers, just so you know. It's like a phobia, all right? I could break my arm and I'm not gonna cry, but if I stub my toe, it's, it's borderline sinful stuff coming out of my mouth and just, it's hard, okay? Now, if I took a hammer and dropped it on my toe, the rest of my body is not going to say, you are a pathetic loser. I can't believe you, all right? What's it gonna do? It's gonna tend to that toe, all right? Because it hurts, The rest of the body hurts. It's going to go to that toe and do everything it can, massage it, ice it, whatever it needs to, to make it feel better, all right? Which is exactly what should happen when we see each other hurting, whether it's self-inflicted pain by a proverbial hammer you've dropped on yourself or not. That doesn't really matter. Because if one of us hurts, we all hurt. And so the reaction should be just as if we hurt, like a body part of us got hurt. We all go and tend to that person, okay? As was the case with the Israelites in in Daniel. This is kind of his mentality, okay? He did this. He didn't desire to dwell on their sin, which they had plenty of, but rather he desired them to be in a place of repentance so they could be restored to God. So what did he do? He prayed and interceded on their behalf even before they ever got to that place of repentance themselves, all right? Which I dare say was effective because eventually they did come to the place. Now, 
The second thing I want you to know in his repentant prayer is that he understood that God was not to blame for the bad things happening in their lives. See, at the end of his creation, God declared in Genesis one thirty one that everything he made was good. Very good, actually, is what he said, right? And James one thirteen tells us that God doesn't tempt anyone or he's not responsible for evil or bad things. And 1 John 1, 5 tells us that God is light and that there is no darkness or evil in, in him at all. And as such, the bad things we face in this world, this is important for us to memorize, especially in our testimonies to unbelievers, because this is a misconception. The bad things in this world are not God's fault. They are a result of sin, whether it be ours or other people's, all right? And knowing that and reminding ourselves of that helps us take responsibility for our actions because sometimes we can, in the midst of hard things, blame God unnecessarily when it's not his fault at all. Amen? And Daniel understood this. And he was able to say that, God, you are right and just in everything that's happening that you've allowed to happen in Israel's life, you know, basically... Um, and, and he also understood that, you know, the, on the flip side of that, that God still loves us. He, he, he wants to show mercy. He's full of grace. And that leads to the third principle of prayer that we see here in the example Daniel gives us. And that's petition. All right. So first, number one, know who God is. Number two, it was repentance. Number three, it's petition. All right. He says in verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities or sins of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. Or the idea is that, God, we want you to be glorified in the way that you answer and you keep your promises to us all right this isn't about us it's about you because we want others to see how good and great and loving and merciful you are all right he goes on to say for your own sake O lord make your face shine upon your sanctuary or the temple which is desolate because all the people have been taken away and have been destroyed oh my god incline your ear and hear open your eyes and see our desolations in the city jerusalem that is called by your name because jerusalem was desecrated For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel petitions God for forgiveness and deliverance on behalf of his people. And I want you to note the basis of this plea. The reason he's doing this is in verse 18. What does it say? For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, or kind of like we're not asking because we deserve this in some way, but because of your great mercy. That's important to understand. The purpose of our prayer Along with this, along with knowing that God is merciful, that he wants to show you favor, that he wants to show you grace, the purpose of prayer isn't to try to get God to move his hand in the way you want it. The purpose of prayer is to reach out and take God's hand because he's extended it to you. You might have heard people say that prayer 
changes your circumstances. Well, it can, but first and foremost, the purpose of prayer is to change us so that we get in line with God's will. And here, Jeremiah, he's not demanding anything specific from God in his prayer, but what he is saying is that, Lord, I've read your word, and I see that your will for us is good. It's to deliver us from Babylon. So I want to say that I'm sorry for the sins or that we've done and the, the consequences that we've brought upon ourselves. It's not your fault. This is our mess. But I ask you, I plea with you to keep your promises to us so that people can see how merciful you are. So they can see how good you are. So they can see how faithful you are. And they can know you too. True prayer desires to be in the will of God. And to pray in line with God's word as Daniel does here. Shows a submitted heart to God's will. Which we should have no problem doing. Knowing that God's will is always good for you. Amen. Good, pleasing, and perfect. As Romans 12 says. So it should be easy to pray his word. Or pray his will. And that is what Daniel's petitioning. Remember. You don't ever have to do anything to give God a reason to bless you. You can come to him solely on the basis of knowing that he is your father and that he loves you and he desires to show mercy to you. Right? How many of you guys have had kids before? Isn't it difficult to discipline them sometimes? Don't you desire to show them mercy? (laughs) I mean, how many of you guys have noticed that? Nobody? Am I the only one? Maybe I'm a softie then. Just, just the other day, huh? <laughs> just the other day, my son Solomon, who's been banned from video games indefinitely because it causes him to sin. We're just, we're like God. We take that thing that's bad. We're like, this is what's good for you. But like, he was just like, dad, can I just have some time today? And, you know, it was just really like, God, Dad, I've been good. I, I did these extra chores. I was picking rocks out of the grass because it drives me crazy. I have this, like, border with rocks, and they end up in the grass. He's like, can I just have some time? And and I really want to show him mercy when he does that, right? He, he, it's not like I want to withhold something from him that he wants, all right? Sometimes I have to do that because I know it's better for him. But I want to show him mercy, And God, to an even greater degree, is your perfect father in heaven. And as his child, he desires to show you mercy in your life. Amen? And it's important for us to understand this because if we think God's response to our prayer prayer in our lives is based on, like, whether we earn it or deserve it or not, then here's what Satan is going to do. He's going to come in and he's going to trick you into believing that, uh, don't waste his time. Because he doesn't want to hear what you have to say. You don't deserve for him to answer your prayers. And that actually pushes you away, God. And that's a lie, all right? We've got to remember, true prayer is never overcoming God's reluctance, but rather it's taking hold of his willingness. Amen? You're not trying to overcome a reluctant God. He's really willing, and you're just accepting that willingness in your life. Amen? And now that we've seen Daniel pray... We're going to see God's response to his prayer, okay? Verse 20 says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the first 
came to me in swift flight. This is one of the areas where we know angels fly. It says right there, okay? If you wondered where that comes from. So, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. That's interesting too, because that's when the Passover lamb was slaughtered, and that's when Jesus was crucified during the evening sacrifice, and this is when the angel comes to him. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So as Daniel is still praying, according to verse 20, God sends this same angelic messenger, Gabriel, that he sent to him in the previous chapter, to give him a message or a revelation about his circumstances as they related to God's word. And I want you to note that verse 23 tells us that the Lord responds to Daniel's prayer as soon as he started praying, even if it took a little bit for that response to get to him. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 8, for your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. So rest assured, if it is taking some time to see God respond to your prayers, it isn't because he's not listening or somehow he's missed your request. And maybe he has already responded, but the delay in seeing his response is just because he has the perfect time to bring that message to you, just like we see here in Daniel. But he hears that prayer right at the moment Daniel makes it. And as often is the case with Daniel and God's response to Daniel, he give, or as often is the case with prayer and God's response to Daniel, he gives Daniel a greater perspective on the situation he's in. Whereas Daniel's only focused on their 70 years of captivity and thinking about like, when are we going to be restored, Lord? God sends Gabriel with a prophetic message giving insight not only to their restoration in the here and now, but basically for the nation of Israel as a whole all throughout history as we're going to see in the following verses. And I think that's significant because so often I approach God concerned about something specific in my life. But through the process of praying, God helps me see things in a different perspective, maybe giving me understanding of his word like Daniel says, or like Gabriel says he's doing with Daniel, which leaves me with an entirely different perspective than when I started praying. And having that proper perspective brings hope and peace that I didn't have before because I'm seeing it from the right way. All right, And that's why it's so important to pray as a first response in our lives, especially to trials, because then God can give us that proper understanding so we don't freak out, so we don't continue in anxiousness, so we don't continue in worry, and we don't continue in discouragement. Amen? And so he, Dan, God sends Gabriel to give him this proper understanding. So let's look at this revelation God gives Daniel in response to his prayer. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people. Daniel's people would be the Jews. So this is specifically about the Jews. And your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to tone, atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, right off the bat, the Hebrew word for weeks here means seven just like a decade means 10 or a dozen means 
12. And it could technically, that Hebrew word, be used to mention like seven days or seven weeks or seven years. But we know it's seven years because, and I've pointed this out before, it's always best to let the Bible define itself, all right? And there's a principle called the principle of first mention in the Bible that is a very good principle to understand when you're trying to uh, um, discern things or or like understand what things are supposed to mean. And what that principle says is that in order to understand something, go to the first mention of it in the Bible or where you first see it in the Bible and look at the principles surrounding it there and it'll help you understand what it means. So the first time we see this word week, this Hebrew word used, if you guys are familiar, back in Genesis 29, we see Jacob serve seven years for the right to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel. But what happens? Yeah, Laban doesn't keep his word, and he tricks him into marrying his older daughter, Leah, and that, and then he requires Jacob to work another seven years in order to, to marry Rachel, and that seven years is defined as a week. I'm going to read Genesis 29, 26, 28, so you see what I mean. It says in 26, Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to his wife. So you see seven there tied to a week. So that is how that word is meant to be used biblically, all right? So the 70 weeks mentioned in verse 24 in Daniel 9 is speaking of 70 times seven year periods or basically 490 years. Now, if you, I'm going to throw out a whole bunch of numbers at you. It's probably going to go over your head. If you want my notes, I can send them to you because me, I look at the stuff on paper. But it's very, very important because the, 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 the exactness of this Bible prophecy is amazing. Okay. All right. So note that this revelation is directed to the Jewish people in Jerusalem, according to verse 24. The specific prophecy, it's not focusing on Gentiles or God's church, even though they are involved in revelation during some of this time period. But it's focused on them. And some of the specific events that it says would happen after this 400-year period was completed, according to verse 24, are though are finishing the transgression or basically putting an end to man's rebellion against God, putting an end to sin, atonement for iniquity or sin, bringing in an everlasting righteousness or a right standing with God, sealing up both vision and prophet, or the idea is both the ending and fulfillment of prophecy, and then the anointing of a most holy place, which to the Jewish people would have meant the temple. Who fulfills all those things? Jesus, right? Okay, and that's important, all right? All those things are fulfilled in Jesus, which we're going to see further clarified as, as who this prophecy is speaking of, all right? It says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven times seven year periods for a total of 49 years. Then for 62 weeks, 62 times seven equals 434 years. So if you take those 434 plus 49, you've got 483 years now, which leaves Seven years of that total 490 period that aren't being discussed yet, okay? So then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats, built 
but in a troubled time. So in verse 25, Gabriel reveals to Daniel the starting point for the 70 weeks, all right, which was when the order went out for Jerusalem to be restored and rebuilt, okay? That's when this time period starts. There's four different decrees recorded in Scripture that potentially could meet this criteria. There's one that I think really meets it, but there's four that people argue about that could meet it. The first being in Ezra 1 and Ezra 5, where King Cyrus of Persia makes a decree that the Israelites, including Ezra, could return home from Babylon and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The second being when King Darius of Persia makes a similar decree in Ezra 6, giving Ezra the right to rebuild the temple in 517 B.C. And then the third is King Artaxerxes of Persia, also making a similar decree, giving Ezra permission, safe passage, and supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in 458 B.C. in Ezra chapter 7. Now, the fourth and the one that I think stands out from the rest and the one that is most likely what is being mentioned here is this command or this decree is uh, when the same king Xerxes of Persia gives Nehemiah permission and safe passage and supplies to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Specifically, that's what it says in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. It doesn't mention the temple. It mentions the city in the wall. So it stands out from the rest. And that last decree in Nehemiah 2 is is exactly what Gabriel says there in verse 25. To rebuild the... the um, let me read it again. Uh, from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem or rebuild the city. So that's the decree that I think is being talked about here. And Gabriel, he tells Daniel that from the de- de- that declaration in Nehemiah 2, 69 weeks or 483 years would pass, which would culminate with the arrival of the anointed one. Okay? Now, this is a reference to Jesus. We know that he's recalled that in, in different places, but here, here's something that's interesting as I was studying this. Is God promised? God promises all through the Old Testament that there's going to be a Messiah. Several places that's going to come and save Israel, deliver Israel. All right. Now, this idea of this Messiah is carried into the New Testament with a different title, which is Christ. Okay. The Greek word Christos, from which we get the English word Christ, is the translation of the Hebrew term. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. I looked it up, but I'm I I can't like like. Mashiach, like, like, I think that's how you say it, all right? So, huh? Yeah, okay, Mashiach, like, I can't roll my R's, I can't do that stuff. But that's, that's the Hebrew term that, um, that English word, or that, that Greek word, Christos, in the Hebrew term is Mashiach, which is the source for the English word Messiah, okay? Now, Mashiach, in turn, is related to the Hebrew verb, uh, which means to anoint. Therefore, when the New Testament speaks of Jesus Christ, it is saying Jesus the Messiah, which literally means Jesus the anointed one. Okay? So that kind of ties those two things together, like this anointed one who he's talking about. Now, the 483 years uh, are divided up into, in verse 25, into two parts. First, you have the first seven weeks, or the first 49 years, which are from the decree until the city and the walls are rebuilt. Then you have 69 weeks called out, 
which would be that first seven weeks plus another 62, which would be a total of 483 years from the decree until this anointed one or the Messiah comes. Now, this is where it's really, really interesting. Now, there are different trains of thoughts on this, all right? Some people think that this Messiah coming refers to Jesus' birth, but there's not a lot of chronological math that really backs that up legitly. Um, But others say that that 483 years was fulfilled at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem around A.D. 32. And this is is figured basically utilizing two things, uh, or or like a 360-day calendar, um, uh, which was what Israel used in Daniel's day, a 360-day. We do 365, right? 360 was what they used. And here's the biblical reason for that too. If you look at Revelation 11, 2 through 3, or 12, verse 6, or 13, verse 5, when it mentions 42 months or three and a half years, it also says the amount of days in those time periods, which is 1,260 days, which is based off of a 360 calendar day year. So again, letting the Bible define itself, that's what it appears to be using, okay? The Jewish calendar. So 483 years would be 100 in 73,880 days. Now, if you look at Artaxerxes, he started his reign historically in 465 BC. All right, that's a historic fact. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given on the first day of Nisan in the 20th year of his reign, according to Nehemiah 2.1. So in our calendar system, that places that on March 14th, 445 BC. Jesus started his ministry during the 15th year of the reign of, this is like his earthly ministry when he became known. He started it during the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, according to Luke 3, 1. Tiberius started his reign historically in AD 14. So that puts Jesus' ministry starting in AD 29. A lot of scholars think that Jesus basically celebrated for Passovers during his ministry between AD 29 and AD 32, with, and with the help of lunar charts, they've calculated the exact day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which was around the Passover celebration, which would have been on April 6, A.D. 32. So, from 445 B.C., all right, which is basically when uh, this decree it was made, all right, to A.D. 32, which is when... It is believed Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was. There are 476 years on our calendar. Not 447 because there's not a year zero, okay? 476 years equals 173,740 days. Now, if you adjust the difference between March 14th and April 6th for those days there, you add 24 days to that number. And then you adjust for leap years over that period of 476 years, and you add another 116 days. So, if you take the total number of days from March 14th, 445 BC, to April 6th, AD 32, you get 173,740 days, plus the 24 days for that difference between March 14th and um, April 6th. And then you take uh, 116 for the the leap years, and what do you come up with? 173,880 days, which is the exact number of days Daniel said would be between the decree 
in the arrival of the Messiah. So assuming, yeah, mic drop for God, okay? Um, so assuming that the math is reliable, which it does appear so, nobody's been able to disprove the math, it's a remarkable, yet another remarkable prophecy that only God could have determined in his word. Another reason to know that his word is true, right? Now, here's some other interesting facts that kind of back this up. Verse 25 also, or back up the fact that it's referring to the triumphal entry of Jesus. Verse 25 also refers to the anointed one as a prince, right? Which speaks of royalty. And the triumphal entry of Jesus is arguably the only time in his earthly ministry when he allowed people to receive him as the king of Israel. It's talked about in all four, four gospels, but if you remember Matthew 21, 8 through 9, it says most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. This is basically what they would do to welcome royalty, right? And Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in eyes heaven. They're receiving him as their king, basically, all right? And then Jesus's triumphal entry actually fulfilled another prophecy that spoke of him as being the king. If you guys are familiar, familiar with Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Exactly what Jesus did. Amen? Now, Jesus also made sure to let the Jews know you should recognize this day when he came into Jerusalem because he said in Luke 19, 41 through 42, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Most likely saying that because that day was prophesied. And he's saying, you guys should have known this, that this is who I am. I'm the Messiah. This was prophesied hundreds of years before. And if they would have known Bible prophecy, they would have recognized the day they were living in and understood who Jesus was and what he truly came to do for them, but they didn't. And because of that lack of understanding of Bible prophecy, they completely missed it. And a short while later, what were they doing? Yelling, crucify him, right? Now, Gabriel goes on to say that in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now that term in verse 26 used for cut off is also used to describe death or execution in other parts in the Bible. One of those is Exodus 31:14, where it says, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So you see death and cut off put together there. So when it's speaking of cutting, being cut off, this anointed one, it's speaking of death. Who fulfilled that? Jesus, right? Being executed or killed on the cross 483 years or 69 weeks. That very week he rode into Jerusalem, right? After that decree was given by Art Xerxes for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And the idea behind him is it says... Um, he shall be cut off and have nothing. The idea of that is that his death was not for his own benefit. It was for the sake of others. He didn't gain anything by it, which is exactly what Jesus did, right? Because it says in his word, he who became or he who had no sin became sin for us, right? 
All right. And after Jesus' death, verse 26 says that the city and the sanctuary would be destroyed. The sanctuary being found in the temple. So this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple of God by the people of the prince who is to come. A prince being someone of authority. The prince being talked about in more detail in the next verse, which makes it clear that the Antichrist is who is being referenced there. His people being a reference to those that follow his ways or who are following Satan and against God and his people. And most likely those that the Antichrist are going to descend from. If you were with our studies through Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, when we talked about the fourth beast, we talked about how it's believed that the Antichrist and his empire are going to come like be out of a resurrected Roman empire, all right? And the majority of scholars agree that that prophecy about the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed was fulfilled when the Romans, with a large army, flooded Jerusalem and basically destroyed the temple in it in A.D. 70. All right? Almost done. Don't lose me, okay? And Gabriel goes on to tell Daniel in verse 27, And he, this is speaking of this prince to come, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week or seven years. And for half of the week or three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. So after 69 weeks, the Messiah shall come and be cut off or killed, which leaves one week of the 70 weeks of Israel's history being spoken of here. And that last week or seven year period is addressed here in verse 27, where it says this prince to come will form a covenant of some sort or an agreement with many for a week or a seven year period, which must be speaking of the Jewish people because at the midpoint of that agreement or three and a half years, the prince is going to put an end to sacrifice and offering, which is only the something the Jewish people did at the temple. So it must be a reference to them. And therefore, it also must mean that in this seven-year period, there's going to be a third temple built because right now there isn't a temple on the Temple Mount, okay? This covenant, meaning that the Jewish people must accept this prince as some sort of political messiah, it, it not the or maybe even literal messiah that they're still waiting for. Jesus predicting that in John 5, 43, where he says, for I have come to you in my father's name and you've rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them and here's an interesting tidbit i learned on this like if you look now the majority of orthodox jews acknowledge that whoever it is that comes and allows them or helps them build the third temple that is messiah so if part of that that political agreement that covenant that's made allows them to build the the temple that's probably what's going to seal the deal for them in thinking that that is the messiah for them Many commentators believing that that covenant is going to be some sort of peace agreement because this prince, the Antichrist, is going to come and basically wow the world with the fact that he's able to do something that no one else has been able to do, right? Because nobody's been able to achieve peace in the Middle East, but he's going to. And with this prince ending the sacrifice and the offerings at the temple, he's also going to be responsible for abominations, that word being connected with great idolatry in other parts of scripture. So the idea here is that he brings great desolation by desecrating the temple of God with horrible idolatry. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 24, 15 through 21, when he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, 
Let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And a loss for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. That passage speaking of this great persecution that's going to come against the Jewish people at the midpoint of this last seven or this last week, this last seven year period referred to as the great tribulation by Jesus. Paul also references this great idolatry in Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. He says, and this verse ties this prince to the Antichrist. He says, now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have had some spiritual vision or revelation or a letter supposedly from us, man, there is a lot of people today saying, oh, we're the living in this period. Jesus has already come. Don't believe it. That's what uh, Paul's telling us. Don't believe it. Verse three, he says, don't be fooled by what they say. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness, a reference to the Antichrist, is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God in every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. This passage tying again the Antichrist to the sense that's going to desecrate the temple. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Um, all right. So Revelation 12 and 13 tell us that uh, the Antichrist under Satan's influence will try to destroy the Jewish people in the last three and a half years of what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. So that's kind of ties Daniel. Daniel and Revelation help define each other. If you know these two chapters, you have a great timeline for Bible prophecy, right? So uh, Revelation 12 and 13 tell us the same thing that the Antichrist is going to persecute God's people in the last three and a half years of the Tribulation, but that God's going to protect a remnant of them, specifically 144,000 Jewish people that ultimately are going to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and be saved. All right? So, in summation, with this 70-week prophecy given to Daniel, we know that 69 weeks of it has already been fulfilled literally. But there's been a pause for that last week or that last seven-year period, which will begin with this covenant that the Antichrist makes with the Jewish people. And it'll end with what verse 27 says, the desolators or the Antichrist decreed end, or basically as Revelation talks about his demise as Jesus comes back and throttles him, okay? <clears throat> it won't even be a battle. So God basically has appointed a 490-year redemptive plan for the nation of Israel. 483 years of that plan has occurred. It has been paused because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So in the present, God has moved his focus to the Gentiles in the church, which we're living in that time period right now. And, and, and that will go on until what Romans 11:25 tells us, until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. 
Don't know what that number is. Only God does. But when he, every Gentile, every person that is going to believe in Jesus before the tribulation actually does, then what will happen is, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 tells us, the church will be caught up to be with Jesus, what we refer to as the rapture, and then God's focus is going to return to the nation of Israel for that last week or seven-year period of man's rule on the earth, which will play out. doesn't mean other people, Gentiles, won't be saved, but the focus will be on preserving and saving his people. Now, for the majority of this pause, Israel wasn't even a nation until relatively recently in history, right? Because after the Romans defeated them, they weren't a nation again until 1948 when they were recognized by the world as a state, basically Israel, okay? And at that point, the the proverbial prophetic ticking clock started again in that from that point on, God can start this last week of prophecy whenever he deems necessary or whenever he wants to. And that, along with the other events that we see happening around us in the times we live in that basically God said would happen as we get near his return, and recognizing those things should produce in us the same response that Daniel had in that, holy cow, this is talking about us and the Lord is coming back for us soon. Man, I got to get praying. I got to get busy for God. I, I got to like draw near to him. Like however that looks in your life. Obviously, there's different ways you can do that. But it should produce that same excitement and enthusiasm for the Lord that it produced in Daniel. Knowing how short our time could be. Amen? Amen. All right. So, got through it all before 8.30. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word, Lord. We do thank you for just giving us great examples of things that only you could have done, telling the future in such a specific, detailed way that we can verify that there's just no other explanation for it other than this must be your words because you're the only one that could tell the future. And we're just thankful for those proofs. You didn't have to give them to us, but you have in your word. And we're thankful for that you've given us the examples you've given us of things like prayer and, and just you know the right way to look at Bible prophecy and how it's what the, the, the response it should produce in our lives like we see in Daniel, Lord. Um, so that we learn from those things. Because we want to understand all of your word. You tell us over and over again that it's all necessary. It's all good for us. And so we know that this isn't like just some complex thing that super smart Christians understand. That like this is beneficial to us because it produces this anxiousness. This, this, this desire to keep looking up as you tell us to do. Knowing our salvation is drawing near. So Lord we want that to happen. We want to understand the time short with our spouse and our kids and our friends and our family and we want them to know you just like we know you and we don't want to waste a single opportunity you give us so that we're found faithful when we go to be with you face to face lord and that all of that work that you want to do through us knowing that even though you've preordained these good works for us you've preordained them for us to walk in like to be a part of to actually actively participate lord we're not on the bench in the game we're actually in the game and so lord we we want to we want to be intentional 
about participating with you in these things, Lord. So help us do that as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.